Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. For those of us that are old enough, when we think back to JFK and Camelot, we think of a time of innocence, of renewal, of possibility. And then the 60s happened. There's been a lot of talk lately about the 60s, about the fissures that opened up, and about the fact that we're still trying to breach them. Sidney Schamberg, the great reporter who died this week, once told me in an interview that he thought Vietnam represented the end of consensus politics in America. Since then, we've been seemingly searching for the politician or the leader that could bridge that divide. The irony has been that in a time of polarity, it's been impossible for that leader to emerge. So we look back to what might have been, and when we do, the image and mythology of Bobby Kennedy rises almost like an apparition in the body politic. Why? What was it about Bobby that made us think he was different? It wasn't his conviction, or his ideology, or his morality, or his intellect, or his manners. Perhaps it was a unique ability to empathize, to see all sides, to shapeshift himself in ways that allowed him to find truth, or at least consensus, where none seemed to exist. This is the Bobby we get to see in Larry Ty's new biography, Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. Larry Ty has been an award-winning journalist at the Boston Globe, a Neiman Fellow at Harvard, and now runs a Boston-based training program for medical journalists. He's the author of biographies of Satchel Paige, Superman, and Edward Bernays, and it is my pleasure to welcome Larry Ty back to this program to talk about Bobby Kennedy, the making of a liberal icon. Larry, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, and I love that introduction. You should have written my jacket copy or maybe my preface. That was really beautiful. Well, thank you very much. Few politicians that we've ever seen on the the landscape, either contemporary or even historically, have shifted, have changed as much as Bobby Kennedy. When we look at the early years that you write about, he was an ardent anti-communist, a supporter of Joe McCarthy. He approved the wiretapping of Martin Luther King, was even in favor of the Vietnam War early on. Talk a little bit about Bobby as a transformative figure. So I'd like to do that, and I would also like to say that in today's world, where we're a whole lot more cynical, we call change flip-flopping when politicians do it. I think Bobby Kennedy gave a good name to the word change because it was really heartfelt. He started out, his first real job was working for Senator Joe McCarthy in an era when McCarthy was at full force with his... um, table-thumping, red-baiting, witch-hunting. And Bobby Kennedy thought that Joe McCarthy was not just a friend of Joe Kennedy's, which he was, and which is why Bobby got the job, but he also thought that that Joe McCarthy was the only politician in America who was going after communists the way that Bobby Kennedy thought that he ought to be and thought that the country ought to be. He really believed and I guess it's no surprise since he was Joe Kennedy's son, he really believed in the communist threat. He was quite conservative in his politics. And what he did in those early days was so different from what he did in his liberal icon days that it's quite shocking. And yet when we remember back to what America was like in the era of Eisenhower, it shouldn't have been shocking. Bobby Kennedy was representing a fairly consensus view of America back then. And that, in a way, is what makes his change so interesting. He was changing at the same time the country was. 
What's interesting about it is that it is so easy in looking at this in, in a granular way, as you do in the book, to really look at it in a cynical way, to view him kind of like the arsonist who then becomes a firefighter. So that's definitely one take you can have on, on what he was doing. I like to think that what he was doing was um, something as sincere in terms of what he was doing in the 50s as what he was doing in the 60s. And the idea that somebody... So I would like to think that if I were a politician in the 1950s, I would have had more insight than Bobby Kennedy did in terms of Joe McCarthy's victims as well as whatever he was doing in fighting communism. Um, and I think that Bobby Kennedy definitely showed a short-sightedness then. And yet when you look at the McCarthy hearings, McCarthy was famous for his hearings, and we all know about the Army McCarthy hearings that brought him down. But what most people don't know was that the best set of hearings that he ever held and the ones that had the most bipartisan consensus on his committee were the hearings stage managed by Bobby Kennedy, where he wanted to go and look at and did look at what our allies were doing while we were fighting the Chinese communists in Korea. Our allies were not just shipping supplies to them, but actually shipping their troops. And he was saying, what are we doing? We're subsidizing our allies on the one hand, and they're aiding our enemy. And it was, he didn't, in his hearings, do all the things McCarthy became famous for in terms of trampling on people's rights. He took on the powerful, he asked the tough questions, and history rendered a very good verdict on those hearings, if not on most of Joe McCarthy's hearings. You know, so much has been written about JFK and the influence that Bobby had on him, both in terms of his election to the Senate, his election to pres as president, and even in the White House. Talk a little bit about the influence that JFK had on Bobby. So JFK had an enormous influence on Bobby in terms of, in, in a number of ways, starting when they were kids. Bobby was in the younger group of the Kennedy kids. He was, among the boys, what his father called the runt of the litter, meaning he was the smallest, and he was the one who seemed least likely to ever make anything of himself. And JFK, whenever he would go for a walk with Bobby on the beach, when he at a young age took him at his father's behest on a trip to Asia, that was giving Bobby a validation almost as important as having Joe Kennedy validated. And in those days, Joe Kennedy wasn't giving any validation to his middle son, Bobby. And when JFK did, it meant everything. He helped teach him how to toss a football. He was the smart older brother who just gave Bobby a sense that he could make something of himself. And that was important then. It continued to be important in terms of the validation in the campaigns for Congress, for Senate, and most importantly for the White House. And it was finally in that White House campaign where Bobby showed just what he was made of and gave back in equal measure in steering what may have been uh, one of the most successful campaigns, one of the most brilliantly orchestrated, and one of the most um, the best campaigns that gave a sense for the kind of hardball campaigning we've come to take for granted. Bobby Kennedy was shrewd, and he was incredibly tough, and he invented Dick Nixon, uh, uh, what a guy that we ended up calling Tricky Dick Nixon, said that he learned all of his dirty campaigning 
from Bobby Kennedy in 1960. The, the corollary of that with respect to Bobby, and it's true on the political side in terms of JFK's campaign for the Senate and his campaign for the presidency, and it is also true in, in the other things that we talked about with respect to the degree Bobby sensed the generational change that was coming was that he was so finely attuned and, and, and had such empathy and connection with the public, with public opinion, what was going on in the country. It's absolutely true. And the, he, had, uh, he could read public opinion brilliantly. And he was, through his life, partly helping um, steer public opinion and partly doing a terrific job when he was running his brother's campaigns, when he was running his own campaigns, of anticipating what the public wanted. But unlike today's politicians that try to get out ahead of the winds, Bobby was also willing, when he had to, to go against the political winds, which is why I would never accept the um, definition of him as a flip-flopper. I would say he was somebody who truly had transformative transformative change himself, and it was heartfelt. He really, he grew by learning and observing and seeing things on the grassroots. This guy who had grown up in Hyannis, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod, in Palm Beach, in some of the most luxurious surroundings in America, learned best by being in the middle of the Mississippi Delta, getting down on a dirt floor with a toddler, or by going out and seeing in Vietnam what was really going on. He just... This is a guy who wanted to see at the grassroots, who wanted to learn, who knew what his deficits were, and was doing everything all his life to try to fill those in. How much did he share in conversation with others about that change and about that transformation? So he was probably the single worst person in America at assessing <laughs> his own change. He was very unreflective. He said he sort of hated to talk about himself and hated to talk about psychology and hated to have people try to pin him down in terms of an ideology or in terms of a shift. And even as he was changing, even as he was quite eloquent in talking about what he was doing at the moment, in terms of assessing, uh, the Kennedys all were famously unreflective, and Bobby was probably the most uh, unreflective of the pack. And of the people around him, did he get feedback that was in some way reflective of the change, even if he didn't take it seriously? He was getting perpetual feedback. Uh, people called him uh, Raul Kennedy because Fidel Castro's younger brother, who was his defense secretary, was Raul Castro. And people, um, everybody was trying to perpetually sort of pin him down and give him a label the label that stuck in the early days was ruthless. The label that stuck in the later days was radical. And he would hear those things, and he learned how to... The Kennedys could never escape the hound, uh, the, the press pack of reporters that was following them and trying to assess them everywhere, and Bobby did his best to avoid them. And in the later days... He won them over in a way that he actually became friendly with them, but he still never liked to reflect on himself. It's hard to imagine somebody like that existing politically in our 24-7, always-on culture, media culture today. On the one hand, that's true. And on the other hand, if, if we could sort of talk about some contemporary circumstances and how Bobby speaks to them, um, we've seen 
in the very recent past, all the violence, the, the race-related violence has gone on everywhere from Baton Rouge and St. Paul to Dallas. And 24-7 coverage of that, instantaneous, instantaneous punditry on that. And I think that Bobby Kennedy offers an incredibly instructive lesson to Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and to all of America in terms of what he did in a moment, a comparable moment of racial unrest in America. And that moment was what happened the night that Martin Luther King was shot and killed in Indianapolis. And I assume your listeners remember that <clears throat> the horrific circumstances of that event, and Bobby Kennedy found out about it when he was campaigning in the Indiana First in the Nation primary that he was engaged in that year in 1968. He found out about it, and he was due to speak at a rally in the middle of the ghetto in Indianapolis. And the mayor told him, no, you can't go. Um, it's not good for you, and you will just create unrest. He said, thanks for the advice, and he went. And he goes into the middle of the ghetto. He is telling most everybody there for the first time what happened to Martin Luther King. There are oohs and just groans in the audience. And yet he manages that night by talking about his brother for the first time, the pain of his brother's death, by talking about how it's a time the country has to come together. He manages to make Indianapolis one of the only big cities in America that didn't have riots that night. And he offers the kind of instructive lesson on how to speak authentically to people that I think would resonate today. I think what we're looking for more than anything is precisely what Bobby Kennedy offered. And a 24-7 news cycle can detect that as well, which is authenticity. And he had something original to say. And instead of people getting upset that night, they almost it was almost like they wanted to soothe him because of his loss. And it was just, it was an extraordinary moment. And to me, it was emblematic of what this guy did and why why he's somebody that people like Clinton and Trump ought to study. To what extent was that a transformative moment for him? So I think that was transformative. I think if we were to point to one single moment that was his true epiphany, it was actually back in November of 1963. He's sitting at poolside at his estate in McLean, Virginia with Ethel, and the box with the phone, the hotline to the White House rings. And it's J. Edgar Hoover telling him that his brother had been shot, and a call came shortly after saying his brother was dead. And that was truly an epiphany moment, because this was the tough, hubristic Bobby Kennedy who thought there's nothing that he and his family couldn't do. And suddenly he's lost his brother, his best friend, his boss, and his sense of purpose. And he went through nearly seven months of what I would call clinical depression, where he began to doubt everything. He began to read the Greek uh, tragedies. He began to see that all the things that he had taken for granted were something not to be taken for granted. And we're all a balance. Jeff, you and I are a balance, and everybody's a balance somewhere of toughness and tenderness. And the balance with Bobby Kennedy had definitely been skewed to the tough side until that moment. And from then until the end of his life, the tenderness in him started coming out and the empathy and really being able to relate to people who had lost something in a way that I think was profound, in a way that gave him 
the words and the courage to do what he did years later after Martin Luther King's death, and that on the eve of his death had him offering the country a very different kind of political figure, somebody who could build bridges between blacks and Hispanics and blue-collar whites and really bring the country together. Talk a little bit about that transformation for him and how people around him, and you interviewed so many of the people around him, how they responded, how they noticed, how they saw that change in him. They saw the change in partly the way he changed positions on critical issues that had been defining ones for him. He started out at the beginning of his, of his brother's presidency and of his attorney generalship as relatively clueless on civil rights. And as he worked his way through the responses, the federal responses to the riots in Birmingham, in Montgomery, at Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi, he learned and he grew from each experience to the point where by the end of his attorney generalship, he may have been the most trusted white man in black America. And he was leading the way in standing up to the segregationists rather than trying to see if he could appease them. It was obvious in terms of what he did in Vietnam. He started out as the staunchest of advocates of the war, thinking we could win it. He was one of the inventors of the whole concept of counterinsurgency. And by the end, by the time he was in the Senate, he became the strongest critic of the war. And he actually stood up in the Senate and said, I was wrong. On issue after issue, it was apparent to the people of the country, how he was changing, and to the people around him, people like his wife, Ethel, who I had two wonderful sit-downs with, they saw this guy in personal turmoil. On, On an issue like Vietnam, it wasn't easy, not just for him to change his mind, but for him to take on a sitting president, his brother's vice president, and she saw this internal angst in him, um, He'd come home at night and stay up late and talk to everybody he could think of talking to in, as he would work through this. And it was, it was as real as we could ever believe a politician could be in terms of truly changing his mind and changing his thinking. How did he respond to the protests of the time, both on the civil rights side and the anti-war side? So he responded in two ways. On the one hand, he was a leader of the protest movement. The anti-Vietnam War people came to him before they went to Gene McCarthy or anybody else in 1968 and wanted him to be their standard bearer. On the other hand, he worried a bit about the protests in terms of, of they were pushing him to do things that he was only slowly being comfortable, becoming comfortable with doing, including most profoundly taking on Lyndon Johnson in 1968. And he was again tortured by this. He would see the protesters, he would think, these are the people I ought to be responding to. And yet he was uncomfortable doing it. He, he started out life and spent much of his professional life as in the middle of the American establishment. And taking on that establishment took getting used to. The transitions that we've been talking about, the transformations that he went through, to what extent did they have as the, at their core an intellectual basis, a policy basis, and to what extent were they an emotional response to what he sensed going on in the country? Um, I think they were more than anything. Bobby Kennedy responded best and most 
legitimately on the emotional level. And I think that as much as intellectually he had some of the smartest staff in the country when he was a senator, earlier when he was attorney general, and later when he was a presidential candidate, um, his real response to his staff and to circumstances was on an emotional level. It was the emotion of the thought of young men dying in Vietnam. It was the emotion on the issue of poverty and civil rights, of getting down on the dirt floor of a shack in the middle of the Mississippi Delta and trying at eye level to make contact with young kids who were malnourished. It was always the emotion that launched him, and then he would have his his staff put together the intellectual arguments for it. But the this was the most gut-level, instinctive politician that I've ever seen. It's interesting how we've, we've come to an era, and, and maybe we've been in it for a long time, where emotionality is teased out of our politics so much. It is, and I think that um, Bobby Kennedy's an argument for a lot of things in terms of our politics, and one of them is to put emotion back into it, because if you don't have, you can't have authenticity and you can't have a real gut instinct for what people are feeling unless you're emotional. And the idea, again, that somebody who came from such a benighted background ended up being the most instinctive and emotional politician of our era um, is a surprise and is nice. Yet the other side of that same coin, the other side of the emotional coin, which Bobby saw with with Joe McCarthy, and which we're seeing to a certain extent today, is the demagogic side. Yes. So people accuse Bobby at different times of being a demagogue. I think he was the opposite of a demagogue. He was going against... A, a, a demagogue is what Joe McCarthy did, which was sensing where the winds were taking us and trying to get out ahead of them and doing it shooting from the hip without facts. Um, that is what I think Joe McCarthy did. That is what, as I read the McCarthy hearings, um, I think I could have substituted at lots of places for Joe McCarthy's name, Donald Trump's name, because, again, it was that kind of demagoguery. Bobby was the opposite. Lots of his change was against the wind. He was against Vietnam before most of America was against Vietnam. He was for civil rights at a time when the Democratic base in the South was against civil rights. He was defying sort of public, um, not just public opinion, but the mob sense of the country. And he was doing it with enough fact-based. It was even when he was with McCarthy and could have gone wild in terms of his search for communists, he would only do it with the best of evidence. And that's why his hearings look so different than the normal McCarthy hearing. So if demagoguery and sort of fact-checking are the polar opposites. Bobby Kennedy erred much more on the side of fact-checking and everything he did. One of the things that you talk about with respect to Bobby, and it, it makes him so different, arguably, than, than his brother, was that nothing came easy for him. He didn't have that kind of Gadsby-esque ease, even though he was also to the manner born. Um, that's absolutely true, and that to me is why Bobby uh, Bobby didn't have his brother Jack's easy intellectual charm. He didn't have his brother Ted's 
sense of being able to glad hand with people. Ted Kennedy was probably uh, the favorite senator, whether people agreed with him ideologically or not. If they had taken a vote on the guy they'd most like to have gone out and had a beer with, it would have been Ted Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was probably the guy they would most likely have, have uh, given a good book to. And Bobby Kennedy was somebody who none of his colleagues in the Senate especially liked. He was a tough guy, and he didn't. He was the opposite of a gladhander, and yet I would argue that of the three Kennedy brothers, he was the most passionate, he was the most provocative, and I like to think, but I could never prove, he was the one who could have been the most interesting person mm -hmm. in the White House had he made it there, and I think he was on the verge of doing that when he was shot. I mean, you touched on this before in talking about how tortured he was. He was somebody that was really never, and part of it goes to this transformational aspect we've been talking about, he was never comfortable in the moment. He was never comfortable with, with who he was, it seems. No, he was incredibly comfortable in certain moments, and when you look at what those moments were, as I said before, so the moment of being in the ghetto that night um, after Martin Luther King was killed, the moment of being down on the floor with a toddler in Mississippi, the moment of being with his, the 10 kids that he had before he died with 11, number 11 on the way. He was comfortable in those moments, but he was never comfortable in his public moments. And that was one of the wonderful things about him. If you looked at his hands when he was giving a speech, they were shaking. He was, he was so... Uh, unintuitive as a politician in terms of that being a career that this nervous guy would go into and that's why it was wonderful to see him there he was the opposite of a Bill Clinton or Barack Obama who seemed naturally eloquent and yet the two of them looked to him as one of their primary models who knew him the best Ethel no question. So I did, as I mentioned, two long interviews with Bobby's widow, Ethel. And she, on the one hand, when she's talking to a journalist or an author, which she almost never does, was not loquacious. The, um, uh, she would often answer in one-word phrases. And yet every theory that I had on him that I ran by her, she brilliantly made clear that she got him personally and professionally in a way that nobody else did. Uh, they were as simpatico as two people could ever have been, the same way that Bobby had a relationship with Jack that didn't require words to convey what he was thinking and what he wanted to do. The same was true with Ethel. She was wonderful, and she totally got him, and she spent the last 50 years very convinced that he's been looking down from on high and that she is still married to him. And finally, in, in the realm of speculation, Larry, what would he make of the country today? He would say, I think of the country today, this is almost identical to the circumstances that confronted him in 1968. The country was at war. The country was riven by racial tensions. The country was still struggling with the issue of poverty. He would say the country is the same, and the answers and the coalition that he was trying to build are as appropriate today as they were in 1968. Larry Ty, his book is Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. Larry, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was great doing it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.